All right, let's, uh, let's bow and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you and praise you as the almighty creator of the universe. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this Lord's Day where we have the privilege of gathering as the body of Christ to worship you in various ways. And uh, we thank you especially now for the opportunity to worship you through the study of your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself and the truths about you and about your great plan of salvation in your word. We pray, Lord, for the presence of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds so that we can really truly understand what you're trying to teach us from your word today. We pray, Lord, uh, that uh, this word that we're about to study uh, would be active in our lives, that we would apply it to our lives, we would apply it individually and also to the life of the church, uh, so that we would be obedient uh, to Christ in our personal lives and obedient to Christ in the life of the church. We thank you so much for the love and grace and mercy that it took to send Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So here we come to part eight. Part eight. <clears throat> mm. So we're going through the letters uh, to the various churches, and we've seen a letter to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, and today we're going to be looking at the church, letter to the church in Thyatira, the church that tolerated sin. So this is what we'll learn today. We'll look at this letter, uh, what Christ has to say to his particular church in Thyatira in the first century, and by extension, what he has to say to his church all throughout history, all the way through to today, to Hope Bible Church. So we're going to look at the correspondent, who is it from, we're going to look at the church that it's sent to, we're going to look at the city in which that church uh, lived uh, and had its ministry, we're going to look at the commendation that Christ makes to the church, we're going to look at the concern that he had with this particular church, we're going to look at a command that he gives to the church, and then some counsel that he gives to those that are still faithful within that church. And so, um, you'll see that we, um, of course, Patmos is where John is, and then there was a letter to Ephesus, and then there was a letter to Smyrna, and then there was a letter to Thyatira, and now we're working our way inland, uh, Pergamum, and then we're working our way inland to Thyatira. Uh, but first, let's take a look at what we did last week, uh, the letter to the church in Pergamum last week. So um, we have this introduction last week that was uh, the sharp two-edged sword uh, referring to God's word in many places in the scripture. Uh, and this is a description of Christ coming as a judge and executioner. Uh, not very promising introduction to that uh, church in Pergamum. Um, they were um, kind of a worldly church. They had uh, mixed in worldly practices. Um, there is no record of how the church in Pergamum was found, but we have the uh, description in Acts chapter 19 that the word went out, the gospel went out, uh, and was preached throughout the province of Asia from Ephesus. Um, there was a pagan culture, of course, surrounding uh, the church at Pergamum. Uh, they had a lot of... Um, pagan worship of the different uh, deities. They had temples to all the deities there on the hill. Uh, but there was uh, the most severe 
persecution came because of the emperor worship cult that was centered there in Pergamum. Um, there was still a commendation for this church in spite of the difficult circumstances around. They still um, had most in the church were still maintaining their faith in Christ. Uh, he commended them uh, for continuing to hold fast even though they were there uh, in what he describes as where Satan's throne is. And so despite all the persecution they were suffering, uh, they endured, and the believers in Pergamum were holding fast to the name of Christ. And of course, all was not well. There was the, the, the majority were holding fast, but they, uh, they, did, they did have some who were holding to false teaching. So some were holding to false teaching. So a small minority in this church, and we'll see a, a contrast with the, with the next church that we see, it's not a small minority in the next church. But in this church, it's a small minority uh, that were holding to false teaching. Um, and there were two specific heresies that Christ mentioned uh, in that letter to Pergamum. Uh, one was a, uh, a parallel to an Old Testament character named Balaam, and the other one was a New Testament character named Nicholas. Uh, so in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, we have the story of Balaam, who um, tried to lead the uh, people of Israel astray. Um, God very severely judged the people at that time, and so uh, the Lord Jesus threatens to do the same in this passage, similar to what, uh, what the Lord had done to the children of Israel. He wiped out 24,000 of them in one day because they were following the false teachings of Balaam. And so that's why Jesus uses that parallel, the, the serious parallel to the Old Testament. Uh, and then he mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there were some within the group that were uh, following the teachings of uh, this Nicolaitans, which were similar to the teachings of Balaam. Um, the Nicolaitans taught that Christians could participate in pagan rituals and orgies, uh, and they had seduced the church into immorality and idolatry, some members of the church. The majority of believers in Pergamum, however, uh, didn't participate in these this errors. There was just some. And, the, of course, the only remedy for sinful behavior is repentance. Um, and so tolerance of sinful behavior is not good for the person that's engaged in that behavior, and it's not good for the church as a whole. Uh, and he concludes the letter with some counsel and encouragement. Uh, he promises three things to the faithful members, uh, the, the majority that are still faithful. Um, some of the hidden manna, manna, which is a reference to Christ himself, and then a white stone, and the white stone with a name on it. Um, so the Pergamum church faced some, uh, the same choice that similar churches face if, if there's uh, beginning to be some uh, false teaching and worldly influence. Uh, you could either repent and receive uh, eternal glory, or you could refuse to repent and face uh, Christ, uh, what he says is declaring war on them. Uh, maintaining the path of compromise ultimately leads to judgment. That was the lesson from the Pergamum church. Any questions about the Pergamum church before we go forward to the Thyatira church? So another church, uh, Thyatira, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at, this is the longest of the letters uh, to the churches from 18, uh, verse 18 to verse 29. So uh, this is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love and faith, and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the letter uh, we're going to take a look at today. So there's Thyatira. As I mentioned, uh, we have the, the letters going from Patmos, first to Ephesus, and then to Smyrna, and then to Pergamum. So it's going up the coast to the north, and now we head inland and start going actually southeast to Thyatira for the next letter. So the first there's praises, uh, praises of their deeds, their love and faith, their servants and perseverance. But then there's the criticism of idolatry and sexual immorality. And it's not just a few, like it was in Pergamum. It's worse here in uh, Thyatira. Uh, there's an exhortation to hold on to what you have until I come for those that are the, uh, the, the remnant, the faithful remnant within this church. And there's the reward of the morning star, and we'll talk about that uh, as we go through here, too. Uh, so, uh, to start off, um, I'll just give you a little taste of uh, MacArthur's intro to this section. Uh, so, <clears throat> MacArthur says, The Lord Jesus Christ has called his church to be holy and maintain purity by dealing with sin in its midst. In fact, the very first instruction he gave to the church was about confronting sin. Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 17, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So that's the first step of church discipline, and uh, the intention is to restore without it going any further. So if, if you go to your brother, you, you talk to him about his sin, he repents, it's all done. 
Uh, and that's the first step, and hopefully that's the only step that's necessary in church discipline. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And so if you can't win your brother over yourself, go get some help. Try to, don't give up. Don't give up on your brother. Try to win him. Uh, try to get others to help you uh, win him over. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if you've tried and tried and tried to restore this brother and he refuses to repent, then you need to remove him from the midst of the church to maintain the purity of the church. That's church discipline, uh, as Jesus instituted it for his church in Matthew 18. So the practice of church discipline that Christ instituted to maintain the holiness of the church has a twofold purpose to call sinning believers back to righteous behavior and to purge the, from the church those who stubbornly cling to their sin. In either case, the purity of the church is maintained. After the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, the Lord demonstrated his commitment to a pure church by executing Ananias and Sapphira. A very severe example at the very beginning of setting up the church that there, there, was, there were those that were um, outwardly professing to be part of the church. They were uh, sinful. Uh, Peter gave them a chance to confess. They refused, and the Lord struck them dead right on the spot as an example at the start of his church about how serious he was about that. Uh, despite the clear biblical teaching to the contrary, churches throughout history have tolerated sin, following a pattern like the Thyatiran congregation, whose members were engaging in both spiritual and physical adultery. Through the insidious efforts of a false teacher, those sins had become pervasive in the church of Thyatira. It wasn't just a few. Uh, the letter Christ addressed to its members was a sobering one and marks a new phase in the letters to the seven churches. There is a progressive worsening in the character of these seven churches as they depict becoming more and more influenced by evil. That downward spiral reached its lowest point at Laodicea. So from this point, Pergamum is bad, Thyatira is worse, it's going to get worse all the way down to Laodicea. The letter to this church is the longest of the seven, though addressed to the church in the smallest of the seven cities. Thyatira is smaller than any of the rest of those cities. It's an important message for the church today. Uh, that's why Christ spent so much time on this one. False doctrine and sin are not to be allowed, even under the banner of love, toleration, and unity. There may be much that is commendable in a church. It may appear on the surface to have an effective ministry, be growing numerically, and even have cordial society. Yet immorality and false doctrine, if not confronted, will bring judgment from the Lord of the church. Uh, John MacArthur in his commentary introducing this section. So let's take a look. Uh, let's dig in. Uh, any questions so far before we dig into the verse-by-verse -verse look? Okay. Uh, so the introduction, very similar uh, to the introductions. Uh, to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Uh, so once again, we get... Um, uh, imagery pulled from Revelation chapter 1, the vision that John had of the risen Christ, we get a part of the imagery from chapter 1 as part of the, the greeting to each church. Uh, this time we get the title Son of God and two descriptive phrases drawn from that vision that John had. Um, he's 
identifies him in all these letters. Uh, Christ identifies himself in all these letters by choosing phrases from the earlier vision. Uh, and here the phrases that he chooses focus on his role as divine judge. Uh, the first phrase, however, is Son of God. It emphasizes, of course, Christ's deity. Uh, stressing the truth that he is one in essence with the Father, as we see in John chapter 5. Uh, but the word is actually changed from Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 says, Son of Man, in one thirteen. This time it says, Son of God. And Son of, this is the only place in Revelation where we see this phrase, Son of God. Um, so the emphasis is not on his humility as a man, his, his ability to uh, uh, empathize with us, sympathize with us because he was a man. That's his role um, as the high priest, the perfect high priest described in Hebrews. This emphasis on the Son of God is um, his divine judge, as the divine judge. Um, that's how he introduces himself here. And as the divine Son of God, he has eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, his vision sees all. Once again, he knows everything that's happening in every one of his churches. He did in the first century, he has throughout all of church history, and he does today. He sees into uh, the true heart of each of his individual followers, and he sees the truth about each church, including Hope Bible Church. Nothing can be hidden from him. Um, now, this description of him having eyes um, um, like a flame of fire, uh, that, that imagery is used elsewhere as well. Uh, we'll see it in Revelation chapter 19 uh, at his second coming. Uh, it says his eyes are a flame of fire. We also see it in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, there's a description in Daniel, Daniel chapter 10 of him having eyes like a flame of fire. And so, uh, because of Christ's penetrating gaze to see all, um, nobody can hide from that gaze. A church could have a good reputation in the community, or even with other churches, but the eyes of the Lord sees what, what really is. Uh, then we have the second description, his description of his feet as being like burnished bronze. That depicts his purity and holiness as he tramples out impurity. Uh, which is what he's about to do here with this church. And so this is, once again, like in Pergamum, this is not a, uh, this is not a warm and friendly depiction of Christ coming to his church. It's a terrifying description. Um, and remember, these letters are being read out to the congregation. They never heard it before. A guy, you know, a guy brings the letter in, and they're all sitting out there, and he starts reading, and imagine what they were thinking as, as he's reading. Uh, terrifying description of the Lord must have created shock and consternation and fear when this letter was read to the congregation at Thyatira. It came as a sobering realization to them that Christ will judge continual unrepentant sin. So keep that in mind as we go through these letters that these were actual letters that were read out to the congregation by these messengers who were taking them around. And this one particular is calling a particular person out who most likely would have been there hearing it. Uh, think about that. Um, 
As in the case with the churches in Smyrna and Pergamum, the Bible does not record the founding of Thyatira. So we get lots and lots and lots in the book of Acts about the founding of the church of Ephesus and Paul's three-year ministry there. And we have this single description in Acts chapter 19 that the gospel went out to the whole province of Asia from Ephesus. But we don't get any specific thing about how this church in Thyatira came about. So most likely uh, it went from uh, Ephesus. But we do get uh, a depiction of a single person um, who was from Thyatira uh, in Acts. Acts chapter 16. Paul's actually in Philippi. He's ministering in Philippi, which is in uh, Greece. And so uh, Thyatira is in modern Turkey. And so uh, she had traveled from Turkey to Greece and met Paul in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, it says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. And it says that she was converted under Paul's ministry there at Philippi. Uh, But she wasn't in her home city. Uh, She had traveled. Uh, Verse 15 records that members of her household also came to saving faith in Christ and were baptized. So Lydia and her household, they would have been um, residents of Thyatira, but she was converted in Philippi by Paul. Uh, It's possible that Lydia and her household participated in starting the church, uh, but it's probably more likely that the church was um, a church plant from Ephesus, and she became a member of the church. She was converted by Paul and became a member of the local church when she got back to Thyatira. Uh, So from Pergamum, um, which is the northernmost of the cities that we uh, look at of these seven cities, the Roman road curves to the east, and then it bends to the southeast to Thyatira. It's about 40 miles on the road from Pergamum to the next city of Thyatira that we're looking at today. Uh, So unlike Smyrna and Pergamum, which were coastal cities, Thyatira was built in flat country uh, and lacked an acropolis. Uh, it, it had its, its lack of natural fortification played a significant role in its history. It was conquered over and over again. Um, it was founded originally by one of the successors of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great, uh, his empire in uh, uh, the 300 BC split into four pieces when he died. And so one of his successors, Seleucus, um, founded this city of Thyatira as a military outpost to guard the north-south road from invasion from the east. Um, It later changed hands and came under the rule of uh, Lysimachus, who also ruled Pergamum. Uh, so Thyatira was kind of a gateway to Pergamum from the east. If you're coming from the east, in order to get to Pergamum, you had to go through Thyatira. And the task of the defenders was to delay an attacker for, to buy time for Pergamum. In other words, Thyatira was a speed bump, a speed bump to invading armies to slow them down, to get time to send a runner to Pergamum saying the enemy's coming. Um, so that's, that was their role. And they did it well. They got speed bumped many times uh, throughout history. Um, the invading army would come. They would smash Thyatira, but they would hold them up just long enough for the Pergamum defenses to get ready. Uh, so the city was repeatedly destroyed and rebuilt. Um, and so the only references really to Thyatira in ancient extra-biblical literature uh, usually describes its conquest by an invading army. So they were famous for being 
conquered by invading armies. So that's the city of Thyatira. Um, <clears throat> and finally, at about 190 BC, so th uh, the th it was founded sometime after 300 BC, and now we get to 190 BC, and it was conquered by the Romans. Um, the Romans conquered it and next it to the Roman province of Asia, and then they had some peace uh, because they were just another city in the middle of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, then, after there was some peace, uh, they enjoyed a, f a flourishing commercial trade. It became a commercial center uh, and was noted for numerous guilds. Uh, so in, in those days, guilds were roughly equivalent to today's labor unions. So they got together and they formed these guilds for each of the different trades. Uh, the main industry was the production of wool and dyed goods, especially purple dyed goods, dyed with a purple dye extracted from the matter root. But we have inscriptions, ancient inscriptions, that mention many guilds from uh, the city of Thyatira. The Linen Workers Guild the Makers of Outer Garments Guild, the Dyers Guild, the Leather Workers Guild, the Tanners Guild, the Potters Guild, the Bakers Guild, the Slave Dealers Guild, the Bronze Smiths Guild. So they had a guild for everything in Thyatira. Um, and so Lydia, it makes sense that Lydia was, um, um, that was the way she was described uh, as one of these, uh, she was probably representing her guild there in Philippi. Because Thyatira was a big commercial center, they did business, all these guilds did business all over the, uh, the, the Roman Empire. And so there was Lydia in Philippi representing her uh, Dyer's Guild, uh, most likely, in Acts chapter 16. So unlike Pergamum and Smyrna, Thyatira was not an important religious center. So those two were centers of pagan religious worship. Uh, Thyatira, not so much. It was a commercial city. Uh, the primary god worshipped by the Thyatirans was the Greek sun god Apollo, but it wasn't the center of life in Thyatira like it was in some of those other cities. <clears throat> Nor does there appear to have been a sizable Jewish population. So there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a big Jewish population, and the Jews are not mentioned in this letter. So the pressure faced by Christians in Thyatira came actually from the guilds. Uh, to hold a job or run a business, it was necessary to be a member of a guild. Each guild had its patron deity in whose honor feasts would be held, uh, complete with meat sacrificed to uh, idols and much sexual immorality. And, and so if you were going to be, if you were going to do business, you had to be in a guild. If you were in the guild, you were expected to participate in these feasts. And so Christians faced the dilemma of attending those feasts or losing their livelihood. So that's where the pressure came. That's where the pressure, it wasn't from uh, pagan worshipers. It was from pagans in these guilds that were uh, peer pressure to conform to what everybody else in the guild did. Um, and so how some in the Thyatira church were handling the situation caused the Lord Jesus Christ great concern. So as he had with the previous churches, Christ commends the church at Thyatira before voicing his concern. So that's the pattern. He points First he gives them a pep talk, tells them what's right. Then he comes to the, the criticism after. So he starts with... I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance 
and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So that sounds really good. Uh, he assured them that he had not forgotten their righteous deeds, which he divided into four categories. Love, faith, service, and perseverance. Uh, so first, the believers at Thyatira were showing love for God and for one another. Uh, the word is agape there, so it's the, it's the right kind of love. Um, although that love was apparently fragile since there was not a strong foundation of unified sound doctrine. Uh, in some ways, Thyatira was strong where Ephesus was weak. Remember, Ephesus had lost their first love, but Thyatira, at least the remnant, uh, they were, they were um, commended specifically for having love here by the Lord Jesus Christ. So love first. Second, Christ commended them for their faith. Uh, pistis, faith, better translated fidelity or faithfulness. Uh, the true Christians in Thyatira were, were dependable, reliable, consist, consistent. Uh, they had fidelity and faithfulness. Uh, faith and love are frequently linked in the New Testament. We see faith and love together here, like we do here, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So over and over and over again in the New Testament, there's a link between love and faith. Uh, and so those are characteristics, inward characteristics, love and faith. And if you have those inward characteristics, love and faith, they manifest themselves by outward activities of service and perseverance. Those who love will express that love through meeting the needs of others. That's what the service, diakonos, um, that Greek word means. It means to meet the needs of others. Um, those who are faithful and steadfastly persevere in the faith, um, those who are faithful will per, uh, steadfastly persevere in the faith. So faith and love lead to service and perseverance, and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ commends the remnant there in Thyatira for being characterized by these things. Uh, love and faith leading to service and perseverance. Not only that, but um, their deeds of late are greater than that at first. So the, the faithful remnant is um, maturing and growing in grace. Uh, their loving service was becoming more consistent. Their faithful perseverance growing stronger in spite of this, uh, the church becoming uh, more and more characterized by those who were uh, sinning. So they were growing grace, maturing in their Christian lives, advancing the cause of Christ. For that behavior, they were to be commended. Any questions so far? Okay. But, there's that word. But, after that wonderful commendation, but, there's the word but. But, I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So despite the commendation that the faithful remnant got, um, it was not all well with the church. Um, the problem was not external persecution, not external pressure uh, from um, the, the, the pagan idol worshippers or, the, or the, uh, the cult of Caesar worship. Instead, it was the vicious wolves from inside the flock. 
Um, and that's what one of the things that Paul had warned about in Acts chapter 20. And so, if you remember Acts chapter 20, Paul's about to sail from Miletus. Um, and he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus to him. He's about to sail f- uh, from Miletus, uh, from Miletus to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem. Um, he calls the, the elders from the church in Ephesus and he warns them. And one of the things he warns them is that there will be vicious wolves from among yourselves. And he's talking to the elders now. From among yourselves, you elders, will come vicious wolves uh, that will try to tear apart the flock. And so here you have somebody that's a teacher in this church in Thyatira who's uh, tearing apart the flock. Uh, So the penetrating gaze of the Lord of the church had discerned a serious error here in Thyatira. And so he warns, I have this against you. Um, So it's a singular pronoun, actually. Um, And so... Um, some have taken that to mean that he's very particularly admonishing the leader of the congregation. I have this against you, uh, Mr. Pastor, who's elder who's leading this church. Uh, the indictment is that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, so tolerating this false teacher in their midst is what particularly Christ has against this church. Uh, and the particular things that she's leading them to, he um, he identifies them here. The sin apparently involving the majority of Thyatira church members was twofold. Uh, first, they violated the biblical teaching that women are not to be teachers or preachers in the church. So um, there's no uh, biblical warrant for this lady to be teaching in the church at all. And then there's a huge problem with what she's teaching. Uh, so they tolerated the woman Jezebel, called herself a prophet. They compounded their error of permitting her to teach by allowing her to teach error. Uh, as a result, Jesus declares she teaches and leads my bondservants astray into immorality uh, of a wicked type. Um, and so uh, Jezebel most likely, I uh, read a bunch of commentaries on this, most likely her name was not actually Jezebel. But Jezebel is used as a type of the Jezebel in the Old Testament. That that her behavior was um, characterized like the behavior of Jezebel. Um, Most likely that was not her real name. Uh, But like her Old Testament counterpart, the woman in Thyatira who falsely called herself a prophetess, succeeded in leading Christ's bondservants astray, so they committed acts of immorality and ate things sacrificed to idols. And so Jezebel in the Old Testament was extremely wicked and led Israel into the worship of Baal um, in the Old Testament. Uh, One might speculate that she may have espoused the philosophical dualism prevalent in Greek philosophy. And so the dualism said that the body and the spirit were separate, and in fact the spirit was good but the body was evil. And so when that was brought into the church, teaching held that the spirit is good, the flesh is evil. Since God is only interested in the spirit, it's prefers falsely argued. So their false argument was, well, God's only interested in spiritual things. And so it doesn't matter what one does with one's body. And so 
you can spiritually worship the Lord in spirit and truth and then engage in pagan orgies because God really doesn't care about the, uh, what happens to the body. Um, and thus, according to Jezebel, it did not matter if Christians committed acts of immorality or ate things sacrificed to idols. Um, so the Bible, of course, teaches that true Christians can fall into sin. And in fact, it says we will. First uh, John 1, 6 through 10 tells, tells us, goes a step further and says, if we say we have no sin, then we lie and we make God to be a liar. If we say, and so John's very specifically in First John chapter 1, he identifies his audience as believers. And so he's talking to believers and he says, you believers, if you say you have not, no sin, then you lie and you make God to be a liar. Uh, so Christians can do, will fall into sin. But to lead other Christians into false doctrine or immoral living is a very serious sin when meriting the most severe punishment. So there's a difference between, there's a difference, category difference, a level difference between falling into your sin to yourself and deliberately leading others into sin. Uh, that's much worse. In fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 18, shortly before he does the church discipline passage earlier, he describes the consequences for those who lead others into sin. Uh, Matthew 18.6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The little ones who believe, of course, um, are not physical children, but spiritual children, believers. Um, he's, he's using an illustration to show, to talk about believers. There's actually, at the, in the instance, there's a little child there, and Jesus says, you've got to become like a little child. He's making an illustration that a believer is supposed to have faith like a little child. Um, but when he's talking about um, somebody who's leading one of these little ones astray. He's talking about somebody leading believers into sin. Um, and it's so serious to lead another believer into sin that the Lord said, death by drowning is a better option, better for you, uh, to have a big stone tied around your neck and tossed into the deepest part of the ocean rather than if you're leading people into sin. Uh, and then he continues uh, with this little uh, phrase, very interesting, I gave her time to repent. In other words, um, she's been doing this wicked thing, and, um, and contrary to the situation with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Christ didn't just strike her down immediately. He's given her some time to repent. However, she is not taking advantage of his gracious offer. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her in a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. So, graciously, the Lord gave the false prophetess time to repent. Um, but the sad truth is, people who love darkness rather than light, they don't want the light. Um, she did not want to repent of her immorality. Remember, this is somebody inside the church who's teaching inside the church and who's listening to this letter as it's being read out to the congregation, out there in the congregation. And those who are following her are out there in the congregation hearing this. Um, that Christ is going to throw her onto a bit of sickness as she's listening to this being read out in the congregation with everybody around. Um, her blunt and final refusal to repent would lead to a terrible judgment introduced by the arresting word, Behold. 
So behold, everybody pay attention to what I'm going to do. Throw her in a bed of sickness. Um, because she refused to repent, he declared, I will throw her in a bed of sickness. The words of sickness are actually not in the text. Um, the, the, the Greek text just says, I will throw her in a bed. That's all it says. Uh, the translators add of sickness um, by conjecture. Uh, that that could have been what he was thinking of. But it literally just says, I will throw her in a bed. In light of the finality of Jezebel's refusal to repent, in other words, he's had a chance to repent, and now Christ is finished with it. Um, it's more likely that the bed refers to death and hell, ultimate resting place for those who refuse to repent. Uh, so divine judgment was about to fall on Jezebel. She had been given her chance, and now the chances are done. Uh, but there's another group. Yes, go ahead, Larry. So, uh, so what I would speculate is that at least somebody in this church had confronted her and said, no, that's not right. What you're teaching is not right. She had heard those words from somebody, and she had refused to repent. But it wasn't like the whole church. She was tolerated. She was still tolerated. Somebody had told her, no, you got to repent of your wicked ways, and so he had, the Christ had sent somebody to do that, and she had refused. And so her opportunity was to repent was done. But there's another group of people that still have an opportunity to repent. If you'll, if you'll see uh, the rest of this uh, little phrase here, uh, divine judgment was about to fall on her, and those who commit adultery with her, in other words, spiritual adultery with her, that were following her, her disciples within the church, are also called out here. Uh, he threatens to cast them into great tribulation. And this is not the eschatological tribulation described in Revelation 4-19, to but some sort of distress or trouble that's going to come on them right now right then in the first century uh, since these were sinning Christians who had believed their lies the Lord does not threaten to send them to hell does not threaten to uh, immediately stamp them out like he did the false prophet he promises to bring them severe chastising um, unless they repent so they still have a chance the, those who are following her still have a chance she's done she's been given her chance she's done there are those in the church, many in the church, who are following her, and Christ says, you still have a chance to repent. Um, but unless they repent, uh, they're going to follow her. Um, so unless they repent. So he's given the followers of this Jezebel a chance. Um, and then he names a third group. So there's those who are currently following her, but there's also evidently some... Um, um, kind of another, a whole new generation of people. Uh, he, he, this third group of divine judgment declared, I will kill her children with pestilence. Um, and so, not her biological children, uh, I don't think this is referring to, but her spiritual children. So the church by this time was about 40 years old, assuming it was, uh, it was a church plant from Ephesus shortly after the time of um, uh, Paul being there. So about 40 years since its founding, and so the false teaching had been around enough so that there was a whole second generation of errors that had, had arisen. Um, and so the, the Lord had, in the past, in, um, in, uh, killed Ananias and Sapphira. 
Uh, but he threatens to kill these errorists with pestilence. And uh, the actual Greek word that's translated pestilence there is death. It's just the Greek word for death. And so literally it says, I will kill them with death, uh, the children of Jezebel, the spiritual children of Jezebel. I will kill them with death, is, is the little literal Greek there. Um, very severe, uh, what he's going to do if they don't repent. Uh, this another generation. So, so you get the picture here in Thyatira. It's not just a little bit. It's not just a little the little bit of uh, of wickedness is getting in. This is starting to characterize the church. You've got uh, you've got this woman Jezebel. She's got false teaching. She's got some original followers. Now she's got a whole another group, uh, a whole another generation of people that are uh, that are rising up to follow along with her and teach the same things that she teaches. That's the picture that we get here in this letter. And, and Christ is not happy about that, and he is coming for judgment. Um, uh, Jezebel, her, her chance to repent is done. She's done. There, there are those that are participating with her uh, that has, still have a chance to repent. Um, and there's this next generation of followers who are starting to teach the same thing that she's teaching, uh, her spiritual children, and Christ is going to kill them with death. Uh, that's the literal in the Greek. I, I will come and uh, I will kill them with death. Um, kill her children with pestilence. I will kill her children with death. Yes? <clears throat> I, I just have a quick question. I know you just walked through each of them. If you compare the three, right? I mean, it's throw her onto a bed. And yeah. That idea of sickness is sort of given for help. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And then there's a threat of great tribulation for those who don't repent. Yep. Repent. Yep. And then there's strike children dead. Yes. Are yes. Are we supposed to interpret any sort of degrees of those? So, yeah, I'm not... English, it sounds like hers is the easiest. Yeah, right. yeah, no, that's not quite right. Um, I think the, uh, the the focus is on um, whether there's still an opportunity to repent. Um, and so the, the text says that uh, Jezebel's been given her opportunity to repent, and she's done. But the others have an opportunity to repent. Um, but there's a threat if they don't repent. This is what will happen if they don't repent. Um, and so it's, and, and the consequences are very serious, and, and it's, not, it's not easy to understand the Greek, um, like, like you said, throw her in a bed doesn't sound so bad, um, but it's, then um, it, that's, I think that's why the translators threw in a bed of pestilence, to make sure that the, um, the concept comes through that it's um, it, this this throwing her on the bed is an analogy of uh, of sending her to hell. That's really what the the analogy is. Um, the others are not. It doesn't say that the others have been already been given their uh, opportunity to repent and they're done. Um, it says unless they repent, um, and so. That's, I think, really the focus is she's done. Those who are following her will be, um, will be very severely um, chastised in one case and eventually killed uh, if they don't repent. I think that's the, the focus. And any others? Yes. And uh, the original Jezebel did a similar thing. 
Um, Ahab was the king of Israel, but Jezebel, who was a princess of the Phoenicians, came in and she was really running things, right? If you read the, the passages about the descriptions of what was going on in Israel, Jezebel was really running things, not Ahab. Um, she had kind of usurped the king's authority. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, she's doing a very similar thing, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, that's the analogy that the scripture uses that, that calls this woman Jezebel. Yeah, so w whatever she did, she was able to worm her way in there and convince more and more and more people so that she had uh, spiritual converts, um, called her spiritual children here, that were proliferating in this church. Um, and so uh, Christ is coming for them. Yes? Is there an indication what those sins were? So uh, the sins are uh, identified as sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And so uh, the picture, I think, is um, kind of pagan revelry. Um, and the the Greek philosophical underpinning of that is philosophical dualism, where <clears throat> you separate the spirit and the body, and so what you do in the body doesn't affect you spiritually. That's the teaching of dualism. Yeah, and so what, one of the interesting things in that vein is, um, in the Greek, the phrase, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, that you is actually singular, and not plural. And so, um, it, it, yeah, the top authority, the, the person, that were, the elders that were in charge, um, they weren't doing anything about this woman Jezebel. Evidently, somebody in the congregation had confronted her, but the, the people that were in charge, they hadn't done anything about it. Um, and, and so, you know, I'll, we'll see what happens to Thyatira. Thyatira church was gone by the second century, completely wiped out. Um, and so, yeah, so if, if you, it, the, other, the other thing to, I think to learn from this is uh, church discipline, um, you got to nip things in the bud. You know, once they, once they spread, um, it's really, really hard to, you know, once the cancer spreads, it's hard to deal with it. If you, if you catch it early, you, you, can, you can get that cancer. But if it spreads and it's, you know, a big, giant portion of your body, there's nothing they can do. And so the cancer had really spread here in, in Thyatira. Yeah. Okay, so Jezebel had hardened her heart, but there was warnings for her disciples to repent while there was still time. Uh, the severe judgment promised to the false teacher and her followers again reveals Christ's passion for a doctrinally and behaviorally pure church. Um, Christ would receive glory when he judged. So that's the next thing that we see here. Um, there would be glory for Christ when he judged Jezebel and her followers. When that happened, all the churches would know that he is the one who searches the minds and hearts. Uh, that phrase, the one who searches the minds and hearts, um, is a, another confirmation of Christ's deity that's used in the Old Testament in reference to God. First Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, and Jeremiah in a couple places. So that's a reference to um, uh, the one true God, the one who searches the minds and hearts, and so that's identifying Christ here is doing that, and that's uh, bringing glory to Christ. After he judged the church, all other churches will be warned 
against the evil of tolerating sin. They would also realize that nothing can be hidden from the gaze of the Lord of the churches. Uh, so that would be the result. Uh, he addresses a word of comfort to those true believers who are still there. At the very end of this, this verse, I will give to each of you according to your deeds. And so uh, those who are not following um, um, this Jezebel, Christ sees them too. Um, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So those who are not following uh, according to their deeds as well. Those who were innocent would not be punished with the guilty. Everyone, that everyone will be judged by his or her deeds is a frequent theme of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 16, Romans chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Revelation chapter 22, everybody's judged according to their deeds. Uh, and Christ points that out here as well. Uh, so works have always been the basis for divine judgment. So uh, divine judgment by works, salvation by grace through faith. Um, and so the fact that uh, works have been the basis for divine judgment does not mean that works are the basis for salvation. That definitely is not true. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Titus chapter 3. Salvation is by grace through works. So judgment based on works, salvation by grace through faith. You see the distinction there? That's been confusing to people over the years that don't uh, think that through clearly. The fact that uh, judgment is based on works does not mean that justification is based on works. Those two are not the same thing. Um, everybody see that? Any, any questions about that? It's important. That's a very important doctrinal distinction. Uh, very, very important. Uh, people's deeds reveal their spiritual condition. Uh, that's what James meant when he said, I will show you my faith by my works in James chapter 2. So the deeds that you do reveal uh, you, the inner man. Uh, now we can be fooled. Christ cannot be fooled. We can be fooled by somebody that seems to have uh, good works and doesn't really. That You can fool some, some of the people some of the time. Uh, but you can't fool all the people all the time, and you can't fool, fool Christ ever. Um, but in the main, um, if you know somebody well, if you come to know somebody well, uh, I will show you my faith by my works. Um, that's what James says. Then uh, Christ turns and, and, he, and he addresses solely those who are still faithful. Uh, in verse 24. So starting in verse 24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. So evidently, um, Jezebel was identifying these some of the things that she was teaching as the deep things of Satan. Um, uh, I place no other burden on you. So in other words, he's been just scathing about these... Um, uh, these people that are Jezebel and her followers, and now he makes sure that the, the rest of them, the faithful remnant, understand, I, I'm not talking about you. Uh, I'm not talking about you guys that are the faithful remnant. I have no burden to place on you. Uh, and, but then he says at the, at the end of that, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In other words, don't succumb. You, you guys are doing good. Don't succumb. Hold fast to what you're doing. Uh, having warned the practitioners of false doctrine to repent, he addresses the words of comfort to the rest, those who do not hold to Jezebel's false teaching. 
he further defined the true believers as those who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, as the Jezebel and her Jezebel party calls these things the deep things of Satan. Uh, and you don't know those things. Uh, and it's good that you don't know those things. They evidently claim to be plumbing the very depths of Satan's domain and remaining spiritually unscathed. In other words, they were doing all these things physically, but they said that that didn't affect their spirit. So in their perverse licentiousness and false theology, they believed they could do so with, it, with impunity. Uh, to the true believers who had not experienced this alleged deeper knowledge claimed by the heretics, Christ said, I place no other burden on you. These things, these warnings, these uh, severe consequences that I've been talking about for the Jezebel party, that's not for you. Uh, bearing the burden of seeing blatant false teaching and immoral living rampant in their church and having to resist the incessant solicitation and ridicule from Jezebel and her party, that was burden enough for the true believers to bear according to Christ. But, unless they become overconfident as he's uh, commending them, he exhorts them, what you have, hold fast until I come. So keep on keeping on. Uh, the use of the strong word krateo, hold fast, indicates that it would not be easy. Uh, hold fast in spite of the difficulties is really the, the, uh, um, the flavor of that Greek, Greek word. Hold fast in, difficult, in difficulty. Um, so the coming of Christ, as is related to the Thyatiran church, was his coming to them in judgment. Uh, but in a wider sense, of course, all believers are to cling to what is good, Romans chapter 12, until Christ's return. Uh, so that's an admonition not only for the Thyatiran church, but for all of us, really. And then, uh, the last few verses of the, this letter, uh, he who overcome is a quote, uh, there's a quote in here from... Uh, uh, the Psalms. Uh, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So to him who overcomes, Christ is going to give this authority as the authority has been given to him from the Father, and I will give to him, I will give him the morning star. So these are promises to the faithful. Um, he overcomes. So uh, he overcomes. We talked about this in the previous letters. That means a true believer. And keeps Christ's deeds in contrast to those practiced by Jezebel. Until the end, steadfast obedience. Christ promises two things. First, Christ will give such people authority over the nations. And they shall rule them with an iron rod. This is a reference to the millennial kingdom. The, the, the believers, the overcomers, the faithful will rule with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And that's described in Psalm chapter 2 as um, ruling the nations with an, a rod of iron. Um, those who remain faithful to Christ, despite being beaten and despised in this life, will rule with him in his earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, which we'll get to later in the book of Revelation. He also promises to give his faithful followers the morning star. Uh, now, there's some references to the morning star. There's a passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13. Um, and that would seem to indicate reflecting Christ's glory. Uh, and that could be uh, part of what he's talking about as well. Um, also, the morning star is a description of Christ himself. Um, 
and he'll take that title very specifically in Revelation 22. Revelation 22 identifies Christ as the morning star. Um, and we know that Christ has promised himself to his followers. Um, the one whom we, we now know in part, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, then we will know fully just as we have been known fully. So he knows us fully. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, then... Um, when we're in his presence in glory, in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll know him fully. Um, and so, I think what Christ is saying is here, I will give him the morning star, I will give him myself. That's, that's what they'll get, they'll get me, um, because he is later identified as the morning star. And so, there could be two um, uh, facets to this. One is reflecting Christ's glory, and one is the fact that we have Christ himself. And we'll be given him fully, we'll know him fully, um, in, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, with our resurrected bodies. So these are big promises that he's making to those who remain faithful. Big promises. Uh, and then, of course, it ends the same way as all the letters. He, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, and so all, everybody's charged to heed the message of this letter to the church of Thyatira. So that, that warning, that uh, admonition, that uh, counsel is given at the end of each letter. Hey, everybody pay attention to what... I am saying, the resurrected Christ, what I'm saying to this particular church, everybody pay attention to it. Not just that church in Thyatira in the first century. Everybody pay attention to it. The other seven churches and all the churches through history and Hope Bible Church in 2023. Pay attention to what I'm saying here to the churches. Uh, there's three important truths that kind of stand out here. First, this letter reveals the seriousness of practicing and tolerating sin in Christ's church. Uh, and that God will judge continued unrepentant sin in the church. Uh, second, that a pattern of obedience marks true Christians. And finally, God's gracious promise to his own that in spite of struggles with sin and error in churches, they will experience all the fullness of Christ as they reign with him in his kingdom. Um, and so... This is the message of that, uh, this letter. Um, now, uh, the, the bad news at the end. Um, it's not known how many in that congregation responded to Christ's warning, but tragically the Thyatiran church as a whole apparently did not heed. Uh, history f records that it fell prey to the M Montanist heresy. So the Montanists were a group uh, in, the first century, in the late first century uh, led by a false prophet, um, who claimed continuing re revelation from God apart from Scripture. He claimed that he had additional revelations from God, and so everybody needed to listen to him. And the church, the church fell for that. The church in Thyatira fell for that, and the church completely went out of existence by the end of the second century. Um, and so that church, it was gone early. And so the church was in a bad way, and Christ warned them, and ultimately, they didn't heed the warning, and that church disappeared. And so, uh, that's always a possibility for any any uh, individual body of Christ. Uh, when the, when Christ sets up His church, His church writ large, the all the body of believers, the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And so, the church is secure. 
the whole body of Christ. But any individual local body of Christ um, is subject to extinction. And the Thyatiran church went extinct not too long after the book of Revelation was written. Um, and so that's a, that's a real warning. Uh, and that's been a warning that's been there in the scriptures for every church uh, since the first century all the way to today. Uh, but we need to heed. If, if, we, um, um, if we think that we are um, immune to um, you know, false, uh, Satan trying to worm false doctrine into our church and uh, Satan trying to, uh, to worm uh, bad behavior into our church, uh, we're not. Uh, we're not safe. We, we need to be vigilant. And um, so as I mentioned before, we as your elders, we take that charge very seriously uh, to, to guard the doctrinal fidelity of the church, uh, to exercise church discipline, to guard the purity of the church. And we, um, we believe that the members of the church take that as seriously as well, um, that you do as well. Um, it's a specific, very, uh, it's, a, it's a specific burden to the leaders of the church, but not just the leaders of the church. In Thyatira, there was at least somebody in that church that stood up to Jezebel and told her what she was teaching was wrong because that gave her an opportunity to repent. And so, uh, it's all of our, uh, our, our job to, uh, to, to be uh, vigilant about our own hearts and about the, uh, the, the collective heart of the church, the leaders in specific, in particular, but everybody. Those churches like Thyatira who fail to heed the message will receive div divine judgment. Uh, those who do heed its message will receive divine blessing. Um, so, uh, that's what we learned today. We, we talked about this church from Thyatira. We talked about who it's from, the church it went to, the city that they were uh, in, the commendation that he made to the faithful remnant, the concern he had about this proliferation of false teaching, the command that he gave to repent to those that still had a chance, not Jezebel, but others, uh, and the counsel that he had to hold fast for those that were uh, still faithful. All right, any questions? Yes? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, there's a man committing incest, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in that case, Paul steps in, and in this case, Christ steps in. Yep. How does this fit in with Matthew 18? It's like, there is no... Second, third, yeah, third. yeah. So uh, I, I think the lesson we get is that uh, Matthew 18 is broken down, um, and so uh, Christ considers that they, they've had their chance to do this internally, and they haven't. And so, for example, his admonishment towards the beginning. Um, you tolerate this woman Jezebel. In other words, you haven't done. I mean, Matthew 18 should have been done. It hasn't been done. You're tolerating sin. You're not following Matthew 18. And so I'm going to step in. I think that's, that's where we are. And I think that's where Paul was, too. Uh, you know, the, the way we hear that everybody knows about this. You know, that, that's, there's no way that you, you, Matthew 18 could have taken place if everybody knows about it now and it's still going on. And so Paul says, I, I'm coming to take care of it. Yeah. 
Yep, good, good point. Good question. Any, any others? So, so that, that does happen. And so that's what it, take it to the church means. So take it to, that's how we take it. Take it to the church means take it to the elders. And so you've, you've gone individually to them and he hasn't repented. You've gone a group of you to him, he hasn't repented. You take it to the church means you take it to the elders, and the elders investigate and talk to him. And then if he doesn't repent after that, then we make the public announcement that they're like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, they're not one of us. We, we put them out of the church. And that has to be done publicly to make sure everybody sees that, no, this guy's not not one of us. We don't identify with him. Um, and so he's, he's an outsider now, and so we preach the gospel to him, uh, like we do any outsider. So um, it, it, if somebody repents, then you don't go to the next step. It, it, any place along the way, somebody could repent, and, and you don't do anything else. He's repented. It's done. So if you go to him individually, he repents, it's done. If you go to him, if he doesn't repent the first step, you go to him a group. If he repents, it's done. Uh, no more steps. If it goes to the third step, it comes to the elders. If he repents, then it's done. And it doesn't get announced to the, to the church. That wasn't the case. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and it's, um, it's not good for the person that's been tra- caught in sin, somebody that's trapped by a sin. Um, that's the picture. Somebody's been captured by a sin, and church discipline is to help him. Help him get out of that trap. It's not good for his soul to be right. trapped. You're trying to help him out of the trap. That's really the picture. Of, That's the love. Yes. We don't understand. We don't That's it. That's it. Love him enough to confront the person's sin. If you love him enough, you you will because that's what's best for him. Uh, if you're if you're truly interested in what's best for that person, you'll love him enough to confront him about his sin. Yep. All right, we've gone past our time. I apologize for that. Good, excellent discussion. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these uh, warnings, these sober warnings that we see in this letter to the church in Thyatira, and we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, you would give us the wisdom and discernment to be able to uh, to tell if there's any issues in our church and to address them early and, and, and to make sure that we don't have any uh, false doctrine or false teaching that uh, creeps into the church or, or any kind of wicked behavior. Uh, we thank you for the, uh, the fact that you love us enough to, uh, to institute something like uh, church discipline so that we can, uh, we can maintain doctrinal and behavioral purity in the church. We thank you for all that, Lord. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we are uh, anxious to worship you together with all of our brothers and sisters here in just a few moments. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.